Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and often in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's guest is Dr. John Vandermeer, who's a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and the Program in the Environment at the University of Michigan. He joined me to talk about a complex agroecosystem that he studied at great length. It's it's one that's highly important to the species involved, as well as the people who rely on it financially, and not to mention the downstream consumers of the product, such as yours truly. Uh, the ecosystem in question is that related to coffee, so why don't you pour yourself a cup and have a listen. Dr. Vanderbeer, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, it's good to be here. Just to get us started, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about uh, the concept of an agroecosystem and how that might differ from, you know, what our listeners might be more familiar with, which would be the, you know, large uh, monoculture fields of, you know, say corn, for instance, uh, you know, when we think of agriculture traditionally. Yes, well, um, <clears throat> the, the history of this goes way back, actually, but um Many people, myself included, feel that uh, agriculture itself is an ecological process. Um, ever since World War II, we've seen the growth of large-scale monocultures, which are heavily dependent on pesticides and fertilizers and large large machinery, which means that they manage economies of scale, so so to speak. Uh, but the fact is, you can't cancel ecology as swarming locusts and other kinds of diseases hitting the big monocultural industrial agricultural uh, agriculturists have shown us in the past. Agroecology really is uh, nothing more than the acknowledgement that agriculture is an ecological process. Now, agroecosystems and agroecology have come to imply something a bit different. They've come to imply uh, an examination of agricultural systems from the point of view of ecological interactions as opposed to from the point of view of uh, elevating production with uh, new new chemical and mechanical technologies. So agroecosystems really are nothing more than uh, ecosystems that are producing agricultural products. So this is sort of a, a way of thinking about it, you know, as an ecosystem first rather than, you know, a simple crop that you, you know, wherein you try to sort of bludgeon all the potential pests and, um, and, and other threats with, you know, increasingly powerful uh, pesticides and, and whatever. So instead taking an ecosystem first type approach. I believe you summarized it better than I did, yes. I highly doubt that. But um, so let's talk a little bit about coffee then. So, you know, why is why is coffee uh, an, an interesting model for, you know, talking about this kind of phenomenon? Well, for me, coffee is a really interesting model because it actually is produced very frequently. It's produced in a, in a, in a fashion that kind of mimics a natural ecosystem. Uh, Small-scale producers traditionally have produced coffee in, 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 in the understory of an overstory of shade trees. Now, this is perfectly logical because coffee originally was evolved as an understory species in East Africa. And so to, to, to produce it as an understory crop is a perfectly natural thing to do. This is common all over the world. Uh, frequently, the trees that are used as shade trees also function as uh, nitrogen fixers. That is, they put nitrogen into the soil in addition to providing the shade that coffee actually does better when it, uh, when it experiences. Okay, and you know, this is something that's always been a point of uh, curiosity for me when I've been reading your work. How similar are the agroecosystems that you study and, and discuss to you know, what might be considered, although of course the term is almost always erroneous, a natural ecosystem? Well, the, uh, 
the kind the, the the coffee agroecosystem in general and several other kinds of ecosystems the cacao ecosystems there's a, what they call jungle rubber ecosystems there's a lot of productive ecosystems that actually mimic what the natural world uh, is like so we have an overstory of trees just like a forest does we have an understory we don't have the kind of diversity in the understory of plants that uh, that a natural forest does but we do have coffee in the understory so you have a you have a, a layered a layered vegetative uh, system, which uh, look very much like a like a natural forest. Now, many organisms, I'm convinced, many organisms don't really know the difference between a coffee agro ecosystem and the and the neighboring forest. Some do, of course, but um, in terms of the physical structure, uh, some of these agro ecosystems, especially the ones that are have, that are more traditional. Uh, they do bear resemblance, at least physical resemblance, to many of the natural, much of the natural vegetation that's, uh, that, that surrounds them. Um, part of the idea of our research, of course, is to figure out exactly uh, what might be the similarities and differences between that natural ecosystem that surrounds the coffee plant, the coffee farm, and what's going on on the coffee farm itself. And you know, as, as you know, what we find so far is that Many of the ecological interactions that occur on the coffee farm are quite similar, if not exactly the same, as what's going on in the natural ecosystem. This is one of the reasons that for a long time now we have thought of the coffee agroecosystem as kind of a model uh, ecosystem. You know, in the same sense that in biology we frequently look at model organisms like the fruit fly, for example, for genetics. Um, uh, in, in many ways, the coffee agroecosystem is kind of a model agro, a model ecosystem for ecosystems that have that basic physical structure, which is to say a, a, you know, a forest a forest structure. So, in many ways, we think that of the coffee agroecosystem as a as a model system modeling mid elevation tropical tropical forest forest systems in general. The utility of looking at it this way actually is that we have something that is consistent. That is, coffee is a consistent feature of this system, and it exists all over the world in a similar fashion. Now, I don't mean to say it's the same all over the world. Indeed, it's different from farm to farm. There's no question about it. But it has certain structural features that are, uh, that are similar as you go from place to place. From a scientific point of view, this makes it convenient uh, so that we can do things to make comparisons. We can, we can try to make comparisons between coffee coffee farms, for example, in Mexico and coffee farms in Kenya. And we have, a, we, we have a reason to believe that there's similarities between the two of them. Some of the insects that eat the coffee are the same. Some of the, the, uh, the, the fungi that attack the coffee are the same, etc. cetera. Uh, if you work in a natural ecosystem uh, at that level of, at, at that altitude, uh, what you find is that you go from place to place, and there's much more variability in the species that are there, and the in all of the details, there's much more variability. So, from scientific perspectives, it's very difficult to draw generalized conclusions like we feel we can draw when we work when we work on uh, the coffee agri ecosystem. Okay, and yeah, and that complexity really does come through. Now, I'm almost a little bit wary of getting into this because you know um, the complexity sort of has a way of building and multiplying. But let's talk a little bit about the cast of characters that make up this coffee agri ecosystem. Um, you mentioned the coffee berry borer and some other species that you know may or may not be considered pests. You know, uh, who are these characters and, and how do they act within the system? Well, that's true. Let's let's, let's be clear. There are there are three. 
three major herbivores that we work on. I'm not going to call them pests because they're not necessarily pests. They eat coffee, and that's for sure that they eat coffee. And that's the coffee berry borer, as you said. But then there's a scale insect, which is a very small uh, small insect that has piercing mouthpieces that pierces the tissue of the plant and sucks the juices out of the plant. That's the, the green coffee scale. And then, of course, there's the coffee rust disease. Now, those three things interact with one another in a, in, in a variety of complicated ways, as we talk about in, in the article itself. In, in order to sort of explain a little bit more about that, let me just say a few words about the whole idea of complex systems. So the whole idea that, uh, com- that ecological systems are complex is a very, very old idea, of course, you know, at least since, since Darwin and probably, be- probably before Darwin. Darwin's famous tangled bank is really quite an excellent, uh, excellent metaphor for the complexity that we see in ecosystems. Now, for the past 30 years or so, scientists from a variety of disciplines, ranging from mathematics and physics to sociology and economics, have been looking at their systems as if they were complex systems. And so what has emerged from this is kind of a new field of study called complex systems. There are centers for the study of complex systems, probably at most most all relatively large universities around the country and in Europe. And the kinds of things that people who study complex systems study tend to focus, tend to be consistent from place to place. And so when we talk about complex systems, what we can do is we can utilize a lot of the insights that have been gained in this new new field of science, really, complex systems, we can use those insights in trying to understand what is what had been before quite evident is the complexity of the agro-ecosystem itself. So in our particular case, for example, we have that uh, the one disease, the, the one insect that's, uh, that's sometimes a pest called the green coffee scale. Now, it turns out that the green coffee scale, scale has a mutualistic relationship with an, a species of ant called Azteca sericeasur. I'll just call it Azteca. So the Azteca ant actually uh, nests in the shade trees in the coffee plantation. And what the Azteca ant does is it sucks in. Well, first of all, the, the, the green coffee scale produces a sugary substance that the ant is attracted to. As the ant is attracted to the sugary substance and eats the sugary substance, why it runs around like crazy, scaring away all the parasitoids that really would, uh, would like to attack the green coffee scale, and, and including the predators that would like to attack the green coffee scale. Now, there's a one particular predator there, which is a, a, a ladybird beetle. I'm sure everybody's familiar with those. And the ladybird beetle actually uh, is a specialist on, the, on scale insects. And so the ladybird beetle will attack the scale insects uh, but it's unable to attack the scale insects when the ant is present. So the scale insect, <clears throat> the scale insect needs to find protection from the ant in order to avoid the predator, the, the, the beetle predator that's there. So what you have is a surprising situation where the ant creates the mutualistic relationship with the scale insect and therefore the scale insect is able to build up huge concentrations um, very, very locally where the, where the ant is. The, 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 it, having built up those big concentrations, why there is a fungal disease that actually attacks the green coffee scale. That fungal disease attacks the green coffee scale only when it's built up these huge populations. 
So we have this really unusual situation, which I would argue is not all that unusual, actually, probably exists in other place in places in nature. But we have the situation where the herbivore, the green coffee scale, is unable to exist when the ant isn't there because the beetle predator eats it. But when the ant is there, why it built up such large populations that the disease, that the fungal disease uh, attacks it and drives it to extinction locally in a local level. So there's kind of a balance between <coughs> the predatory, the predatory beetle and the fungal disease, which actually keeps the green coffee scale more or less in check. If you had, if you lost one or the other of them, why our, our expectation is probably that that green coffee scale would become a major pest uh, for the farmer. And that would be because, you know, the, the typical means of, of having its population under control would be absent and it would, you know, kind of grow out of completely insanely. Yeah, exactly. If you, if you didn't have that joint control of the disease and the predator at the same time, what would happen is either the predator would eat all of the, all of the scale insects and then itself go extinct, leaving the scale insects there to, to expand in the next season or the disease would go extinct and leaving the scale insects to expand the next season. Okay, and, and this is not a single interaction. There are plenty of interactions you know, that kind of work in the same complex way. That's correct. It includes an ant that's mutualistic with the scale insect. It includes a predator that attacks the scale insect, and it includes a disease that attacks the scale insect, all in different places and different spatial scales on the farm. Okay, and so let's talk about the coffee berry borer. Uh, you know, how does it play into a system like this? Well, the coffee berry borer plays into the system in, 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 similar, in similar complex ways. Um, the, the, that very same Azteca ant uh, is actually a, a major predator on the, on the coffee berry borer. But the surprising thing is that, that we find is that the, the Azteca ant, although it is a major deterrent, I shouldn't, shouldn't have said predator, it's major deterrent for the coffee berry borer. When the coffee berry borer comes to a coffee tree and tries to burrow into the seed, which is what it does, uh, the, the, if, the, if the Azteca finds it, why the Azteca knocks it off of the tree. Now that's uh, and again that's great for the coffee bush because that because then they get rid of they get rid of that predator. They, excuse me, they get rid of that uh, that um, that pest. What we have found is that uh, there are other ants in the system, ants which are much much smaller than the Azteca ants. Now when the berry borer burrows, burrows into a seed, why well, it burrows into the seed and then it reproduces. And so it produces eggs, larvae, and pupae that all live within the within the coffee seed. The Azteca ant cannot get into the coffee seed. What the Azteca ant is, it'll, it stops the berry borer from getting into the coffee seed. But when the Azteca is not there, what the smaller ants actually get into the, they, they can enter the hole that the berry borer made and they get into the seed and they actually act as predators on the eggs, larvae, and pupae of the coffee berry borer. So what you have here is this complicated situation where the Azteca is good for the coffee in controlling the coffee berry borer, but only up to a point. If the berry borer gets into the seed that is under protection from the Azteca ant, why then those other ants, which are actually more effective predators, they're not able to get at it. And it's only when they're not in the, under the protection of the Azteca that the smaller ants actually get in there and provide a, an even better uh, biological control of this particular pest. Okay, so it's a, it's more of a matter of you know sort of embracing the complexity and you know having multiple ways in which um, you know different elements of the system you know control one another. I couldn't have put it better. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, coffee rust disease. You know how does it play into this system, and is it related to the other components as well? 
yes, uh, coffee rust disease uh, it, it exploded as a major problem in, in, in 2012, all over Central America and South America. Also, um, it was a, it was quite a surprise when it when it actually when it actually became this big problem, because it it, it arrived in Central America in the early 80s. And at that point, I remember I was uh, I was living in Nicaragua at the time when it arrived. And at that point, everybody was was going crazy, uh, freaking out about the fact that this was going to destroy coffee production. And there were all sorts of programs that people were trying to introduce to control the control the coffee rust disease. Well, it turns out that between 1980 and 2012, it really wasn't a problem. I mean, I don't that I don't I shouldn't say it wasn't a problem, but it wasn't much of a problem. It was a it was a it was something that the farmers didn't like, but it never was a devastating problem, you know? And so everybody started looking the other way, just not paying much attention to it. Yeah, it was there. It was kind of a bother is all it was. It wasn't a big, wasn't a big deal. Then in 2012, all of a sudden, all throughout that whole area, throughout the whole area, it became a, it became a huge problem, a really, really devastating problem, uh, including creating all sorts of political and economic uh, crises in places like Guatemala and Honduras, which uh, we're still feeling the effects of that um, uh, 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 <clears throat> of that attack today in a variety of ways. Now, what we think happened um, was that uh, under normal circumstances, or from the from the 1980s to 2012, uh, the, the the attack of the rust was relatively low partially because of the shade cover that was in the system. Now, one must realize that the, the rust comes, through, comes with, from spores that are, that are carried by the wind. Uh, if you live in an area where there's not very much wind, you're not going to get the spores into the system. And when you're under the shade of shade trees, well, you tend not to have very much wind whistling through there. Uh, there was a very nice study done in Costa Rica before 2012 demonstrating that the coffee rust was uh, was significantly higher in coffee farms that were uh, shadeless, that the shade had been taken out of, and in coffee farms that were situated in areas where there had been a lot of deforestation around uh, around them. And so what we think happened was between, say, 1980, 81, 82, and 2012, throughout the region, Mexico, Central America, uh, Colombia, Peru, uh, all that region, deforestation was happening at a very rapid rate, at a, at a sustained rate, shall we say. So you were having forests that were turning into pastures. Um, you know, the, the shade cover in general in, in, in the area in coffee production was being slowly and slowly, slowly but surely reduced. And so what we basically did was we hit a tipping point. It was a tipping point, class, classical case of a tipping point in 2012, where the amount of wind that was in the area because of deforestation and the and the spores that had accumulated in the air gradually because of the continual deforestation, suddenly it was a tipping point and uh, the disease turned epidemic. Um, that's the way we think that it, uh, that's, that's what we think ha happened. That's why there was the epidemic in 2012 and not before. Now, as far as the connection with the other components of the system, there's a really major connection there. And that connection has to do with that very disease that I told you about earlier that attacks the green coffee scale. That disease is a fungal disease. It's caused by the fungus uh, whose name is Lacanicillium lacanii. 
And in, 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 common, in common terms, it's called the white halo fungus because it forms a kind of a white halo around the green coffee scale when it attacks. But the white halo fungus, it turns out, is also uh, <clears throat> a pathogen of the coffee rust disease. So the coffee rust disease, which itself is a fungus, of course, is attacked by this other fungus, the Lacanocilium, the white halo fungus. And the Lacanocilium is associated mainly with the scale insects. When the scale insects reach high levels of local population density, which happens only when, the, when they're under the protection of the ants, the Azteca ants. So the whole thing is all really intricately connected um, and frankly quite hard to study. Yeah, I can imagine. And I, I guess a question to satisfy my own curiosity, when you study this kind of thing, is it just, you know, intense on the ground, you're, uh, you know, standing next to a coffee bush and just watching what happens? Or how is this research conducted? Well, there, there's certainly some of that. Actually, there's a lot of that. Um, but, you know, everything that we talked about in, in this article is, uh, it was subjected to experimental verification. I mean, we, we constantly have experiments going on. We have a field station there in southern Mexico, and we do experiments in cages. Uh, we do experiments in on the farm. You know, you isolate a you isolate a branch uh, with uh, insect netting so the insects can't get in, and you see what happens when it's isolated versus not isolated. Um, you know, we had all, all of those authors on that paper were <laughs> contributed to the work that was done. And so we begin with observations, and like you said, some of the observations are really intense. You sit there for a long time and watch to see if you can figure out what's happening. But then you develop a hypothesis of what you think is happening. And with that hypothesis, you go into the laboratory and you try to set up a crucial, you try to set up a key experiment, which will allow you to either accept or reject that hypothesis. And then also there's a, a, a really quite a lot of uh, development of mathematical theory that goes along with our work also. So I would say that the work that's reported in that uh, in that article, it, it, be, it kind of begins with the observations, then is supported by empirical experimental evidence done in the laboratory or in the field, and then is uh, sort of coalesced into theoretical mathematical models, and that's sort of the that's the overall framework of how we do it. Okay, and on those mathematical models, obviously they're incredibly complex, but are they used for predictive purposes, or is it more just to find a way to model and describe the system? Uh, I, I think uh, as far as I'm concerned, and I, I think I can speak for most, most everybody in the group, the, the point of having a mathematical model is to develop an understanding of how the system works. Um, to make an accurate prediction requires a different kind of understanding. And I'm not sure that, well, let me put it, let me put it slightly differently. Uh, we feel that the farmers that we work with in general, they understand the system pretty well. And when we discover something, why we also then go back to the farmers and we discovered that they sort of understood it in the past. And it's kind of a, kind of a, cooperative relationship between us and our experiments and mathematical models and everything and sort of the good traditional <coughs> excuse me the traditional knowledge that the farmers have had so to the extent that knowledge allows one to make a prediction of what's going to happen in a productive system i think that the knowledge that we're helping the farmers create does indeed help them to plan how they're going to plan their plan their, plan their coffee farms but we're not in the in the same sense 
trying to make predictions as an engineer would try to make predictions about whether a plane was going to fly or not. Uh, first of all, our models are not that precise. They're not even intended to be that precise. They're intended to give us a qualitative understanding of how the system works. Um, and to develop something at a more precise level is, I will agree, is really important if you don't want a plane to fall out of the air. But I'm not sure is the right way to go in order to help coffee farmers or for that matter, small-scale farmers around the world in general. I'm much more concerned with developing uh, sort of an, the same kind of understanding that I think traditional farmers have and sort of embellish that understanding with modern scientific methods, which include mathematical models and experiments and observations, et cetera. That's interesting. I, I noted, I couldn't help but note rather, that you concluded the article on a cautionary note about the danger and, and the acknowledgement that past recommendations uh, for various farmers have sometimes had unintended consequences. Yes, we did. And so I'd like to talk just a moment about the types of farms we're talking about. You know, these are not coffee farms, I would imagine, on which, you know, Folgers is being grown. Uh, no, absolutely not. These coffee farms... <laughs> Much of the work, much of the work that's reported in there was done on one particular farm. As a matter of fact, it's called Finca Irlanda, and it's a it's a really famous farm for being a fully organic farm, and has been has been in existence for quite some time now. We also work on neighboring farms around the area, and then the various people in our in our team work on other kinds of farms also. We also have a big project in Puerto Rico, and some of the insights that are presented in that paper, as a matter of fact really originated from our work in Puerto Rico, not in, uh, not in Mexico. Uh, the particular place that we work in Mexico is, um, is because, of a, because of historical accidents, is uh, really filled with very, very large farms. Um, we, when, I, when I say we speak to the farmers in that, in that area, I, mainly we're speaking to the people who work on the farm. We're very close with the owner of the farm, that's true. Uh, and we do speak with him quite a lot, but we also speak with people who have been living on that farm all of their lives, and they've been watching what's going on that farm on that farm all of their lives. Um, in other areas that we we don't actually do research, but we have visited very frequently on the in the highlands of the state that we work in in Mexico, in um, in the highlands of Chiapas, and in the highlands of Chiapas, the coffee farmers there are very small scale farmers, and they. And they, you know, they have the same sort of biology going on in their system, um, but, the, but we just haven't, haven't worked in very much detail. We haven't done biological work there. We've just sort of done interviews with farmers in those areas. In Puerto Rico, it's a different situation. In Puerto Rico, the farmers are all small-scale farmers. Um, and in some ways, it's much more difficult to do this research when you have a lot, a, a lot of different small-scale farmers than when you have, uh, when you have a, one relatively large farm that you can do, re, you know, replicated experiments on and everything like that. Right. And so, you know, with these small-scale farms, obviously they're more vulnerable to perturbations than I would imagine would be, you know, extremely large farms. How have they recovered from, you know, the 2012 coffee rust overgrowth? That's a uh... It's a relatively complicated subject. I think one of the one of the things that that has been done um, throughout the area that was attacked by the rust. Now, throughout the area that was attacked by the rust in Mexico, Central America, and South America, 
Uh, there's been a, a very large amount of planting, replanting coffee plants that are re resistant to the rust. Now, what we're observing right now is the rust seems to have come under, to a certain, to a certain extent, have come under control. Every year since 2012, it seems to be relatively constant. 2012 was the worst year. But then 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, they were still pretty bad. But this year now, so far, what we've seen, is it, it seems to be a little bit more under control. And my feeling is that, or our feeling is that, it's because these resistant varieties of coffee have been planted all over the place. Now, what we're facing for the future, I, I fear, is that there has been a little bit too much reliance on uh, just a few varieties, few varieties of coffee that are resistant to the rust. Uh, the rust is going to evolve. There's no question that it's going to evolve. As a matter of fact, one of the varieties that uh, was back in the two, back in 2014, I think, by 2014, 2015, it was a variety that was created in Colombia called Catimor, and that variety was uh, spread all all over all over the area in Colombia, Peru, and up and through Central America also, and like. Three years later, we visited a coffee farm in Colombia where the where this originally produced, and sure enough, there was rust on this particular res resistant variety. So the resistant varieties they absolutely they, they clearly lose their resistance because the coffee rust evolves. So those farmers that have taken to plant, especially the ones who have taken to plant to replant their entire farm with just one variety that's resistant to the rust are really asking for trouble because they're creating a situation where um, there's very, very strong selective pressure on the rust to figure out a way to detoxify whatever the resistance mechanism it is that the, that the resistant variety actually has. One thing I did want to add, though, is if we look at this from a comparative purpose, from a comparative perspective at least, in Puerto Rico, uh, the coffee rust was never... It has never exploded as a huge disease in Puerto Rico. It is a problem, no question about it. Farmers recognize it as being a problem, and occasionally it's a it's a big problem. But on one farm or another, or one river valley or another river valley, but it's never ever been in Puerto Rico the way it was in Central America in 2012. And one of the things that we note in our work that wasn't published in this particular paper, but it's been published elsewhere. What we have seen in our work is that the natural enemies attacking the coffee rust are much more abundant and much more diverse in Puerto Rico than they are in Mexico. And so our hypothesis is that in Puerto Rico, for some reason, and we don't, we don't know why, but for some reason in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, the natural enemies that attack the rust normally are much more uh, abundant, aggressive, efficient, I'm not sure which is the right word to use, and for that reason, the coffee rust has never really exploded to become a huge problem in Puerto Rico like it did in in, uh, in Central America. The other issue, which, uh, of course, is a fairly obvious issue to my way of thinking, if one of those natural enemies is itself a fungus, which is clearly the case, you start spraying fungicides around in, a, in an attempt to get rid of the coffee rust. What you're, you might be killing the coffee rust, but you're also killing one of the natural enemies of that very coffee rust. It could be, could be causing major problems for the future. It sounds like a system in which particularly targeted interventions might have a lot of unintended consequences. Most definitely the case. And, um, you know, I think I would be remiss in not asking a question I ask um, pretty much every time I interview anyone. But 
what effects would we expect or will we expect to see uh, in a changing climate? You know, is, is it too early to tell or do we kind of have an early view on sort of, you know, what's happening in the systems? Well, I think there, there's some fairly obvious things. The coffee will not be, there's, <clears throat> the coffee that I'm talking about, by the way, is coffee Arabica, it's Arabica coffee, and it's coffee, it's a high quality coffee. It's not, as you said at the beginning, it's not the Folgers type of coffee. But it's just it's the high quality, high quality, what they call specialty coffee. And that coffee is probably not going to be able to be produced at the elevations it was produced at in, uh, up until now. And we're kind of seeing that, uh, I think we're seeing that now. Some of the farms that we know of that are at lower elevations seem to be going out of coffee production because their production is going down. Uh, it's getting too hot there to produce coffee. Uh, the rainfall is getting less uh, less predictable, et cetera. So we see that possibly what's going to happen is that the zone where coffee is going to be produced will be moving upwards in the mountains. Now, because it is in the mountains, of course, you can't go up forever, can you? So we're going to see that the lower, lower uh, limit on the range of coffee production is going to go up probably... Uh, Probably, well, I don't know. I couldn't say probably. It might go up uh, to a significant extent, but the upper range can only go so far because you're going to get basically to the top of the mountains, tops of the mountains. So we're going to see a narrowing of the range where coffee can coffee can be produced. The other thing that I, I believe is a real issue that has not been thought about all, as much as perhaps it it should be is the question of the synchronization of the seasonal cycles that exist. Now, coffee flowers more or less right at the end of the dry season. And it's uh, the signals that it gets inside of its own body that says now it's time to flower apparently have to do with dryness during the dry season coupled with an unusual rain towards the end of the dry season. That's an oversimplification, but something like that. Now, what all the farmers have been reporting over the past 10 years or so is that the rains are getting dramatically more unpredictable. Now, where coffee is produced, for the most part, you you have, well, in, in, in Latin America, at least, you have the seasonal cycles are wet seasons and dry seasons. And that dry season, season is kind of important to sort of sort of key up the coffee to produce flowers in, in enough of an abundance so that they get pop, properly pollinated and set their fruits uh, properly and all that kind of stuff. So if what we're seeing is a reduction in the actual signal that we call season, uh, that could have a huge effect. And uh, to my knowledge, that's, an, that's a, a, a problem that is, on the one hand, pretty obviously coming in the pipeline, but on the other hand, it's not really been considered all that seriously so far. Okay, and so it's obviously a, a challenged crop and uh, and a challenged agroecosystem. I'm wondering, if, you know, for our listeners who uh, would be interested in, in buying the type of coffee uh, that relies on these types of processes and, and dynamics, you know, what should they look for? I, I, I've you know often been at a, a shop and seen many, many, many different types of certifications for coffee beans from various places, whether that be fair trade or organic. Is there anything in particular that people should look for? Well, um, I'm, my preference always is to go for something that uh, per, that that is associated with preservation of biodiversity. So, I would say that you know any anything that has a biodiversity friendly or, sh or, or sh just shade coffee or bird friendly, 
Um, that's one thing to go for. There are basically three kinds of certification. There's your uh, there's your organic certification, there's the fair trade certification, and then there's the biodiversity certification. Um, to my way of thinking, it should be organic, fair trade, and biodiversity friendly. Uh, that's 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 what I would recommend. As far as the various certification schemes are concerned, in terms of the biodiversity certification, some of them are not as rigorous as others. Myself, I I prefer the one that the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center uh, has. It's a it's a bird friendly certification um, by the Smithsonian. I think that's a really high quality certification scheme. It requires organic. It requires a certain amount of shade, etc. Organic is a it's a good certification in that uh, the, the the procedures must be organic in order to be certified that way. Uh, but on the other hand, it's a uh, some of the organic farms are completely without without any kind of shade, and they're not very friendly bio, from a biodiversity point of view. Um, so it's a uh, uh, that's about the best I can do on that one. No, and that makes quite a bit of sense, and I, I think it probably just speaks to a need to, uh, you know, be conscious and aware and to educate oneself when making those types of purchases, so that um, you know you can have the effects that you would like to have in the world. Agreed. Dr. Vandermeer, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for having me. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.